Baycat basically is a company that transforms steel into wire solutions in various businesses and the wires are then usually used in, in applications to provide safety, whether it's in tires, better tires, or whether it's to secure bridges or flooring or tunneling or mining, all around the concept of providing better resistance and endurance of, of products. We truly believe when we need to transform that that will come through digital solutions, smart solutions, safe solutions and sustainable solutions. The one word I think you need to have is authenticity. And uh, sometimes I feel you can see when people are trying to play a leadership role and they're not really that. So what I'm not trying to do is that. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Gunter van Kraan, who is the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Bekaert. A very warm welcome, Gunter. Thank you very much. Gunter, you're a commercial engineer and a master in accountancy and audit from the KU Leuven. You also have a master in computer audit from the University of Antwerp. You started your career in the finance sector. Then you worked 17 years for Johnson & Johnson in the pharma sector, both in IT and finance. And then in 2020, you joined Bekaert uh, to become the CDIO. And later on, you also became a member of the executive uh, committee. So Gunter, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? What's... Uh, and how did you arrive in this position? Yeah, thank you very much, Hendrik, for the uh, invitation as well. I've got uh, quite an unusual uh, trajectory to actually end up in a, in a, in a, in a role like this. Mm -hmm. Like you say, uh, I was actually very much interested in, uh, in banking and investment banking. That's why it kind of like explains how I started my career. Uh -huh. I started in KBC as well. Mm -hmm. um, and at KBC, I started to also, at the end of the 90s, realize that uh, automation, computers, and all of these things would change the world at a very small pace at that point mm -hmm. in time and I got interested in what what IT could do yeah. um, and then afterwards I had the pleasure to join J&J uh, combining a little bit my knowledge of uh, banking industry and an IT background to work on security-related products in an IT in an IT uh, context, mm -hmm. uh, and then you know took over the treasury environment uh, from an IT perspective. It was kind of like hitting home because I understood that from a banking perspective, mm -hmm. and JNJ provided me with the opportunity of growth. And uh, every three years I had the opportunity to move into another role, another challenge. Yeah. Geographically, also from a, from, a, from a context perspective, some are in more business IT-driven roles. And then I did a sidestep to be the treasurer of J&J in Singapore. Yeah. Came back to another uh, business-driven role, an integration of a big, big company into the J&J space. And then I had also the experience on the more, like I say, back office type of functions like, you know, networks, data centers, okay. cloud, hybrid cloud, which surrounded me a little bit more as a, as a general CIO. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, my, my, my clock was ticking. I was about to reach 50 and I was looking for, a, for, another, uh, for another experience. Mm -hmm. And Bekart knocked on the door and after a, a while we agreed that uh, both of us could have a very nice challenge for me, another industry, another company to transform, for them to actually kind of like look a little bit broader from an international perspective, what's going on. Yep. And I joined Bekart, which um, seemed like yesterday, but it's now almost three years ago okay. in a fabulous transformation journey. Okay, so from a bank, 
uh, a serious-sized uh, bank to a big, big pharma company yep. now to a, a serious-sized uh, B2B company, yep. Steelwire. T tell us a little bit more about Bicart. Give us some context. I mean, world-famous here in Belgium. World-famous in Belgium, you're totally right. And I think most people, when they think about Bicart, is the, the, the fencing business, which in Belgium and Europe is actually not our product anymore. Mm -hmm. That was sold many, many years ago. Yeah. That's a company that's around 140 years old. Not many people know that, but it's, yeah. a, it's a, a legacy uh, and has been very successful. But it's also the other side of that company today is a company in transformation, mm -hmm. um, where we with the management team are obviously not forgetting our legacy and not forgetting our products, but are trying to figure out how we are going to make a broader impact in the, in the, the big challenges of the world in how people move yep. and how they live. Uh, and to provide more services and more products that might have steel in it, but might not have steel in it and actually might be software. Okay. And so it's pretty big, around 27,000 people? 27,000 people. Our, our revenue is between 5 and 6 billion. It's, it's funky because usually you know how much your revenue is, but the revenue is, is very much determined by the wire of the steel price. Oh, yeah. So we usually talk in volumes because okay. that is more objective yeah. because the revenue is, is dependent on how much we need to pay for our input, input yeah. product, which is steel. Yeah, but it's really a global company servicing Absolutely. many, many countries yeah. around the world. 130 countries. Um, we are quite unique in a sense that um, we don't have too many competitors per mm -hmm. se. Um, we have a, a lot of companies that we have integrated. In many cases, actually, the tire companies, for instance, have given them parts of their plants to us mm -hmm. because they were kind of like de-integrating. And, and that's why we became became very close to almost every tire company there is a Bekart company almost like next door mm -hmm. and we we rely on a very local supply chain yeah. uh, which helped us a lot uh, over the last two years because you know with reverse globalization um, whether that's a trend or not we can debate but anyways we were happy that we could deliver uh, with our plants very close to our customers yeah. so that we were not in a deadlock with what happened on the supply chain okay now Gunther, we live in special times we could say eh? global uh, geopolitical instability with the war going on i mean there's a um, financial uh, crisis maybe around the corner there's certainly inflation there's energy crisis there's many many things going on and, and that, all of, of course, creates some challenges for our businesses. So, so in, in Bekart, in the steel wire industry, what, what would you say are the main challenges, the main drivers of change for the moment? Yeah, there are not a shortage of, of <laughs> challenges. Huh? So I think, you know, we, we compete in the world. So talent is, is a continuous worry for us uh, and the shortage of hands is a continuous worry. Of course, everything which has to do with the inflation right now, whether it's energy or whether it's even labor, yeah. uh, has a big problem, is, it poses a big problem to us. Although we are in a position that we can actually have very good relationships with our, in our B2B world with our, with our customers. Mm -hmm. And we have great transparency, created great transparency, how our prices move according to the input factor. So we have been very, I would say, successful in passing on price to our customers as well in a defense to all of the inflationary measures. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the whole push into our transversal strategies. We have a transversal strategy on innovation, on digital and on sustainability, because mm -hmm. we truly believe when we need to transform yeah. that, that that will come through digital solutions, smart solutions, yeah. uh, safe solutions and sustainable solutions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, uh, I think, our biggest challenge right now is, is, is how do you operate a company that has 
a big and great legacy with great products mm -hmm. and move forward in, a, in an area with a lot of um, unpredictability right now. Yep. Um, we have had a little bit of, of tailwind, there might be headwinds right now, so unpredictability. And at the same time, continue to invest in transformation mm -hmm. and transformation projects, yep. whether they are digital, usually inno innovative. And in our case, very much targeted on more sustainable product solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's a total portfolio management as well exercise yep. on top of the usual portfolio yep. management. And that's driving our strategy right now. Okay, so we're going to talk a lot about sustainability yep. today. But so you say uh, innovation, digital transformation and sustainability are the three main axes of, of yep. strategy uh, for the moment. So maybe quickly on innovation. How do you innovate in the steel wire business? And that, that's a big challenge. Um, because uh, honestly, not many people know that, but Beckert has, uh, has had, in many cases, a lot of patents. And, and, and the first space shuttle that actually went into space had Beckert material on it. Not many people know that. So from a product perspective, mm -hmm. the wires, how you galvanize that or how, how thin you can make that. You can actually make that incredibly thin so you don't see it anymore. Yeah. So like for instance, an ATM machine, when it gives you money, mm -hmm. there's a wire of ours that actually pushes the, the money out, mm -hmm. but you can't see that wire anymore with, with your eyes, but wow. it's a steel wire. So there's a lot of innovation around the product. Mm -hmm. I think our challenge right now is, is more to find the innovation in the business models. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that definitely is a journey, which we only started two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we are trying to do that from the inside, which is a mindset change, a culture change as well, which mm -hmm. you know, comes with um, also my experience of, of bringing in more agility and, and, and the ideas of, of doing experimentation, short experiments, try to figure out, you know, is this a success? Will we continue? Will we stop? Yeah. Is, is, is mindset. And on the other hand, we are, uh, we are relentlessly trying to work with partners as well to bring in new perspectives from the outside on particularly when you look at more digital business models. Uh, around, you know, what the ideation could be around yeah. that and, and a couple of things that we are currently doing, like, for instance, applying you know, cameras around wires uh, with AI components to make sure that, for instance, ski lifts, when they are transported, yep. that we can make 100% sure that that rope which transports the, the, the ski lift is 100% safe. And, and, around, and that's where we are trying to figure out with innovation and usually with digital yep. around how can we bring things around that product more in the spaces of safety or in durability, predictive maintenance. Okay. And we'll talk about digital transformation, uh, in, in, specifically in, in the context uh, of, of sustainability. So, Gunther, the ESG and sustainability specifically is really on top of the corporate agendas, I would Absolutely. say, nowadays. Uh, this has, uh, has, has become a major uh, agenda point on all boards, I would say, uh, nowadays. And, and companies are really aware that their appeal to customers, to investors, and also to employees, I would say, is directly linked to their commitment to create a sustainable and inclusive uh, society. And, and so all companies now have their targets, they have their plans to become net zero. So, so where is Bicard in their race to net zero? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because, like I said, eh, we have the three transversal pillars and sustainability is, is, is one of it. Mm -hmm. Not because it's fashionable, but because we truly believe that we can make, make an impact. One, secondly, we also need to recognize that uh, the production process we use 
is uh, not necessarily the most sustainable production process on the world. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so we have a moral obligation mm -hmm. to continuously look at how do we produce. Yeah. So we are looking at ESG not only from a CO2 reduction perspective, we really look at the E, the S and, and the G. Mm -hmm. um, we have signed up with SBTI. Not, not, many companies have actually targets, but not many have them verified by the SBTI, which is kind of like, you know, when you're really serious. And, and Scoop, our targets were actually two days ago verified by the SBTI. Mm -hmm. uh, we will reduce CO2 by 45% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. Okay. Um, but, we, but more importantly, of course that is important, and we do obviously also have a water in, uh, a target around a reduction of water by 15% and, and other natural resources. Uh, but more importantly, I think, you know, with, with focus, and I think that's also something that we try to do with digital transformation, and we do it now in, in sustainability as well, is, is with focused effort and with squat, with teams that actually go in deep into a plant, yep. we, we, are, we are very comfortable that we can get our, our net, zero, uh, net zero goals, uh, at least with a, with a reduction, um, by just you know, being a good house father of what we do, really. So we're, we're on that journey. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us because we come from a point where, where we're not that great on, on a CO2 perspective, but we find continuously, we find good measures to actually bring our footprint on. And on the other hand, and of course, you know, we are, we are very active in, 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 in the certificate business and so on mm -hmm. to make sure that we, we can derive some of our, um, our investments into more uh, more green solutions uh, from a certificate perspective. Yeah. Uh, because you were, I mean your business is very very resource in, in, intensive yeah. uh, with yeah. electricity and and, and 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 so on and so on so energy. Um, so so what are the major challenges to to uh, to do this as fast as possible? Is that the, the Chinese competition? Which uh, no. is that the premium price? The investments that that need to happen? It's the investments uh, because. Um, there's two things, I guess. Um, it's the investment and the speed of new technology. Mm -hmm. um, so investment, yes, because we are a heavy asset industry, mm -hmm. uh, which means that when you look internally at uh, the machines that we operate, and in many cases, uh, the machines are actually manufactured by Baker themselves, because mm -hmm. Baker used to be and is still an engineering company. Yep. Many of our machines we make ourselves, and they have a longevity of not five years, we are talking about 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. So to retrofit many of those machines is a serious endeavor and, and is a serious investment. And then in some cases, and because people talk about green steel and so on, uh, which is important to us because we are also interested in green steel, but in some cases, of course, you know, although people are talking about it um, in, in, a, in a common place, I would say, the green steel is not necessarily a reality yet, and there is not enough scrap around to actually create the, the, the amounts of green steel that we would need. And secondly, that scrap is not to the level of the quality input product that we need to make our own products. So I think we still need te technology advances from mm -hmm. that perspective in the, in the full end-to-end -end yep. value chain. To, to make that happen. But I think what we see now is, is, is that all players are committed. Yeah. And that's at, at least the beginning of something. Yeah. Uh, so the, I, I can imagine that the easy moves are, are past already using as much as possible renewable energy, uh, green yeah. el electricity and so on and so on. And, and, and maybe also embracing hybrid work for uh, part of the, yeah. of the business. Um, but 
what, what are the, what's the role that digital, digital technologies can play in, in, in moving faster and moving forward to, uh, to, to this uh, sustainability agenda? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's actually a really great question because when we started digital transformation, I would say digital transformation in Bekert, I'm speaking mm -hmm. Bekert, right? So in Bekert, I would probably say that at that point we were forming and storming our, our sustainability strategy. And, and from the get-go, we, we obviously knew that something was coming, but it was not part of the initial framework. Yeah. Uh, but then with the acceleration in, in the sustainability strategy, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that actually sustainability and digital as transversal strategies and as leaders, mm -hmm. we walk uh, hand in hand to execute on the sustainable strategy. And, yeah. and the, the ways that I think the, the, there are a couple of, of things that we need to do, there is all of the reporting. You cannot imagine the amount of reporting that is going to kind of like come as a tsunami yeah. on companies, um, which we are not necessarily ready for. Uh, oh, yeah, of course, we have operational uh, KPIs and, and we track operational statistics, but they're not necessarily in tune with what you need to report. So there's a big reporting effort. And then there is actually things you need to do to, after the quick wins, to be really intelligent. Yeah. And, and where digital plays a role is, is I think, you know, it's, it's just um, on, on the data strategy side. So uh, underneath our digital strategy, we have built a robust data strategy um, not not saying that we will have all the data and not kind of like you know boiling the ocean but we have a, a very pointed and focused data strategy and and now we've pivoted that as uh, that data strategy as well together with our digital transformation to make sure that where where necessary we are supporting our sustainability folks from a reporting perspective yep. Uh, and that's kind of like, you know, uh, looking at all sorts of data that could be HR data for your diversity and inclusion uh, statistics. Uh, but obviously, that's also your energy data and so on, mm -hmm. which we need to kind of like bring together. And we will report in our annual report. Yeah. We are getting ready for that to actually mm -hmm. disclose that probably at first at a, at a less detailed level. But then as of uh, 24, we are committed to actually provide full transparency on that, which means that you need to have all that data together. And on the other side is, is when you have done all your, your quick wins in your plans, there's still a lot you can do. But those are not quick wins anymore. And usually, and, and that's what we do, is, is we deploy machine learning in, the, in, those, in those cases. We were doing that before because economically, yeah. it makes sense. If you basically take a wire and you're going to galvanize that, mm -hmm. then, of course, the less zinc you need to put on that, the better it is for our economics, yep. but also the better it is for the natural resource consumption. Yep. So we were already uh, trying to create intelligent processes, if you want, which is basically trying to get as much data from the machines as possible, run machine learning models on that, and then steer back into the BLC level to optimize our production. And this is exactly what we are doing now with sustainability as yep. well, because, but at scale, yep. not at POC level anymore, at scale, which means if we find the solution, we, de we, we are now in a position with the software that we have acquired and which we operate, that we can uh, rapidly uh, run that across the 130 plants where it, where it is, where it is of, of, yeah. of impact. Okay, so you need to work very, very close together with the engineers that, that, that run the processes, yeah. the operations, and so, um, and, and, and 
AI, machine learning, data is really, can really play such an interesting role in there. Absolutely. It's a, I think it's a, a game changer. Obviously, you know, we, we started with, um, Beckert was already on an, on an MES layer and, and trying to do certain things. Um, but I think with the digital transformation, what we, what we achieved is, is to look at the secondary use of that data. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, you have all of the data where you steer your shop floor and your jobs and so on and so forth. And yep. we are now being able to actually connect it to our SNOP processes so that we have that end-to-end -end process. But the secondary use is, is also very interesting, right? Because now you know exactly what the machines are doing yep. and you can start to kind of like look at what are the interesting business cases. And again, it's focused. Right? We're not looking at everything. Mm -hmm. We're trying to focus on what are the interesting business cases, both from an operations perspective, but sometimes also from an R&D perspective. Mm -hmm. We've we had success, for instance, where um, we were working with a, with a very interesting client for us in, 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 in an elevator uh, business mm -hmm. to figure out whether we could create jointly new products. And, and, and that goes into cycles because, you know, that they have windows where they can test certain things. Yep. Um, and, and at a certain point, with all of the great engineers we had, we had a quality issue on, on creating that product and we couldn't figure out what was going wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and due to digital transformation and the, the, the ability to work agile and to work with a group of people that you can basically redirect when necessary, yeah. in four weeks' time, we figured out what, uh, what the production problem was, mm -hmm. uh, which was a wrong steering with, a, with, a, with a basically a, a, wrong, a wrong threshold. Mm -hmm. We corrected the threshold, the engineers corrected the threshold, yeah. and from then on, we were steadily producing product. Yeah. So and I think those are the, the things that where you, um, because when you come in into a company like that, that is not used to that, mm -hmm. yeah, you are always going to convey your message on PowerPoint, but we, we, we intently also looked for the quick wins where we could prove yep. that the PowerPoint would actually become reality. And I think we are now at that point because my CEO often asked me in the first two years, it's like, you know, when are they going to ask more than what you want to do? And we are at that point right now. Okay. So at, the, at this point, we have our financial constraints. We know what we want to actually achieve. We also know what we can do from a financial perspective. Yeah. And, um, and now the engineers are coming to IT. Much more. And not only the engineers, everyone else. Yeah. And we, we, our biggest problem right now is, is to prioritize amongst very, very good business cases, yeah. really good business cases, and still having to say, maybe not next year. Where is the, the expertise of around data, data science and so on? Where is that situated? How is that organized? Is that in IT or is that in a business unit, it's in R&D? Uh, it's in IT right now. Um, and what is the right place <laughs> for, for I this? don't know whether that's the right place. I think, you know, I, I got exposed to, to, to data science at first in, in J&J when I was... Um, when I was in, um, in Janssen in R&D. Um, and um, that's already, I think, 10 years ago where, where, where not me, uh, a more brilliant CIO, uh, decided that this was the way to go for, to, to basically influence how you design uh, pharmaceutical components. Yeah. And uh, we tried to do that centrally. Um, which worked somewhat, but not really great, mm -hmm. because you need a mix of people that understand a little bit um, statistics or, or understand it very well and, and yeah. can do some, but, but they really need to understand the business context. Yeah. And in that case, 
we found the right people because the right people were all always doctors in medicine. Yeah. And, and then you can debate, do they now need to sit centrally or do they now need to sit in? So I don't know what the right answer is. In Bekert, at least, we have um, decided that we have a core group in digital that, that takes care of the really difficult things. But we also have process engineers around the world. Yep. And these process engineers, they are usually very good in statistics and so on and so forth. So we've invested into technology that we could both cater for the central group and do a citizen approach for everyone else. So we are deploying centrally, and that's the, the, for analytics as well, we are deploying a central group for what we want to control, yep. and we are bringing actually the do-it-yourself type of version of software into the organization to enable people yep. to either do data science themselves or do reporting themselves and, and kind of like be productive. Yep. Now, Accenture did recently a study on, on uh, the role of digital leadership in around sustainability, and they found that only 49% of CIOs are really involved in, in helping to set and drive the agenda around sustainability in their organization. I can imagine that, I mean, you're an, a member of the executive committee, that you are also driving this agenda and, and helping the business in general to, uh, to take this forward, right? Yeah, it's, it's double. I, I have multiple roles, right? Yeah. So... So I'm a more traditional CIO, if you want. Mm -hmm. uh, but in my role as CDO, I'm, I'm much, more, uh, much more interested or much more kind of like focused on what are those next business models, what are those sustainable products, and how, how are we going to put them on the market. And yeah. then obviously, I'm a mem member of the executive committee where we decide upon what is the right strategy for us and also the right pace. Mm -hmm on how we move on this journey, because yeah. there are multiple things that are important, of course, right? I mean, we're, we're in a heavy industry, so safety is important to us. No harm to anyone and no accidents are, are really important to us. We embedded that in our sustainability strategy, yeah. but it's continuously a trade-off around, you know, how fast do we go yeah. in, any of those, in, in any of those strategies. I mean, you, um, you're an active networker as well, and, and, and you're active in CIO.net, and, and, and so you talk to, um, to a lot of other CIOs, I can imagine. Is this a topic that among CIOs, is, is, is that a hot topic for the moment, or is, it, is that still priority number seven or eight? I would say that depends on whether it's a priority for the company. Mm -hmm. uh, most people that I... I only kind of like, we only talk about this with, uh, I guess, more enthusiasm when we are amongst companies that have the same ambition yeah. and describe that as their strategies. Yeah. I think there are still a lot of um, CIOs that I meet, or rightfully so, they're looking at their own business strategies and not every company has made a target out of this is as serious yeah. as it is. What I do think, though, is, is that many of us are also concerned around our own footprint, eh? because there's a company's footprint, but yeah. there's a <coughs> sustainability of factor IT of IT. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you talk about that, yeah. I think that is a subject that um, 95% of all of the CIOs are concerned about. Yeah. So if we make the distinction, IT helping the business to become more sustainable, so there it's around optimal use of data, it's around the best reporting, it's about helping innovation and 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 and... Uh, and many, many other domains there. But then let's talk about uh, sustainable IT. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so there's many different aspects to that. Maybe we can start with the infrastructure level. And uh, I mean, the, the, the infrastructure networks, uh, equipment, reuse, and so on. 
where are you on that journey of, of, uh, of, of making that more sustainable within IT itself? Yeah, actually, it's, it's uh, interesting because when I, when I came to, to Bekert, I wasn't really sure how the organization had evolved over time. And I think from an application perspective, I think there was a lot of room, room for improvement. But on the infrastructure side, I must say that the leader that was in place and that's still in my leadership team had made incredible progress mm -hmm. in, in, in moving into, into the cloud. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, my answer to that is, is you know, I'm, I'm partnering with a cloud provider yeah. um, and we have conversations uh, around, you know, what are you doing? Uh, because they're scope three for us. Uh, what are you doing to actually, you know, make your data centers more sustainable yep. and so on and so forth? And actually, the provider that we are working with provides me with an overview of all of that, so that I can integrate that into our scope three conversation. Yep. And that we, because we all know that uh, <clears throat> the internet and certain things like blockchain and others, that industry has a has, has a rather important CO2 footprint, right? So, so we are we are counting on our on our cloud strategy. We yep. we had data centers. We we have a small one now for just um, the things that we are not ready to actually pro go, go into a cloud first. Yep. But I would say 85% of our uh, of our workloads are in, in cloud, are running on cloud. Um, we are we, we are totally on SD1. Uh, we are, I would say, we are more software defined than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then we are relying from a sustainability perspective yep. more on on our partners and on the strategies, yeah. which we do like any other suppliers, uh, uh, supplier relationship yeah. which we have. And, 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 and that's, I think, a little bit, you know, what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. So <clears throat> by moving to the cloud, we also kind of outsource a little bit the sustainability problem to the, to the supplier there, right? And I think not only the problem, but also the solution, because yeah. let's, let's be honest, I mean... They should be able my, to, to do a better job of than course, I'm not in the data center. I'm not in the business of yeah. building... Even in J&J, we built hybrid crowd, and J&J and has a different PNL than Baycart has, yeah. so you could argue, you could build your own data centers and make them green. Yeah. But that type of investment by an individual company is usually not done. Yep. Uh, so I think by doing that, yep. we are also enabling scale across the hyperscalers. Yep. And, and then I think we jointly need to push them to do the right thing from a sustainability yep. perspective, which they're usually doing because economically it also makes sense. Yep. Now, cloud is, of course, a very interesting discussion. And you said we moved majority of our applications in the cloud, still have some uh, parts in a data center of things yeah. that we're not ready yet yeah. to move to the cloud. So, but I can imagine your, your, your strategy is, is clearly going, uh, going for cloud. If you look at the cost side of that, do you think that cloud in general is more cost effective for companies or, is, or, that, or that's not really a goal in, in going to the cloud? It is definitely a goal. I think um, um, it depends on your maturity level. And I, that's absolutely what we are now also making the transition to. Is, is we first made the transition to cloud and, and you know, that was for certain reasons because I didn't want to invest in the data center anymore. But I think now we are making a more fundamental transition in the operating model around that. Mm -hmm. And we are redesigning the roles that we need into what you call an infrastructure yeah. group. Uh, which is more FinOps, um, because if you don't adjust your operating model, then I think cloud is more expensive, to be honest. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, but if you adjust your operating model, but that means you need to understand 
100% what your workloads are, when they need to be active, when they need to be live, mm -hmm. where, where should they run and how you can optimize. Yeah. And you need to have people to have that economical view that can work with your uh, hyperscalers. Because sometimes I feel there's also this uh, momentum like, you know, the hyperscalers are not willing to kind of like give away some of that margin. Mm -hmm. I don't have that feeling. I think, you know, with, with the partner that I have, we, we are continuously trying to optimize yeah. how that cost can become manageable. But on the other hand as well, um, when you're building data strategies and when you're deploying data strategies for sustainability and other type of solutions, yep. yeah, of course your, your, your usage of, of data is going to go up and there's a cost to that. Yeah. that and is because, I mean, what is it, 1% to 2% of, of global carbon emissions come from, from IT, from data centers and, and so on, so that's... that's it's massive. Massive, and that's, I mean... Water as well. And, and the acceleration, the growth there is, is immense. The data volumes are, are exploding, so, so that's an important thing to manage as well. So, so in, let's, let's talk a bit about on your application uh, landscape. Um, where can you optimize there? Because, I mean, sometimes people talk about uh, sustainable code and, and making sure that your code is... Uh, is is uh, is not redundant and and so on and so on. Is this something? Do you do a lot of bespoke work, or are you more into ERP and and, and applications? Um, well, we are um, we came from ERP. Uh -huh. uh, I think you know when I joined um, Baker, there was I, we still had the IT strategy that we would do SAP unless, mm -hmm. um, which also meant that we that there was a lot of custom built in in SAP. Yeah. Uh, but whilst we went through the digital transformation. I've, I, my belief was is that you know we would need a different ecosystem uh, of okay. different applications that have more integration, um, and that strategy changed a little bit. Now, of course, SAP is still an important product for us because we run our ERP on it and so on yeah. and so forth. But it's not but the it's, only core system. No, no, it's um, it's much more. I think you know, grosso modo, you can say that we have five, six strategic investments into software. Yeah. Um, and that we are in the business to make sure that they speak to each other. Yeah. Um, and then um, the other piece for us is, is important is um, our company has four business units. And of course, you know, like in any company, every business unit will say that they are extremely special and different. Uh, in some cases that is true, but in many cases it not so, it's not so. Yeah. Digital transformation was also for us much more a standardization effort than, than anything else. Mm -hmm. And trying to kind of like be really crisp on where would we differentiate and for what reason. Yeah. And if not, then we standardize, um, which then eliminates a lot of bespoke work. Yeah. Uh, so we are trying to do out of the box as much as possible. And if we configure, yeah. we try to configure standard process. Yeah. So that kind of like brings down the amount of code that we actually need to be worried about. Uh, that helps from a sustainability perspective, although I'm not really sure how the maths work, but that, 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 that helps. But it also helps from a complexity and perspective. And from agility and so Everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, there's the win-win between what you do from an economical perspective and, and how you kind of like treat the environment. So what are the main uh, platforms that you're using? SAP is one of them. What are the other ones? So we are, uh, the partner we are on with is, for, uh, for, uh, is Azure. We work a lot with, with Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Um, we have uh, Adobe on our, um, on, 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 as part of our commercial yep. um, platform, but also the, uh, Microsoft Dynamics for CRM. Um, we work with, uh, with Dassault, 
on the, on the shop, on the shop okay. floor yeah. uh, and with OMP. Um, and then we work with SAS uh, from a data science perspective and an analytics perspective. And we just signed with Software AG from an IoT and industry for the tour. Okay, nice. Spread of <laughs> spread of different uh, standard suppliers, I would say. Yep. There was recently a study done by by BT on the main challenges uh, in, uh, in in IT for sustainability, and and as a surprise, one of the main concerns that came out was security. And so they said that a study said that many CIOs are are uh, concerned about uh, the, their sustainability data, which is sometimes very sensible data. And that to keep that secure and, 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 and make sure that they uh, follow the regulations and so on. Is, is, how is security at, uh, at, at Big Earth? How is that organized? And is that a specific concern around sustainability? Yeah. So, um, like I said, when, when we moved from SEP alone to a more digital landscape, we, we realized that um, you know, we would be more vulnerable than, than we were before when you start to do integrations yep. with with the outside world when you start to do e-commerce when you kind of like your profile yep. obviously uh, goes up so every time i talk to the board it depends a little bit you know what i'm trying to emphasize but um, depending it's either digital transformation which is priority number one or cyber security is priority <laughs> number one uh, but but i think you know the way we look at this is, is we have we have four facets which we think that determine now the digital strategy. And okay. there's the facet of, of the, the opportunity of technology, technology moving really, really fast. Uh, AR, AI, ML, all of these things. There's, there's the opportunity then to kind of like get that into businesses and, and drive value and, and opportunistic value, but also incredible value out of that. And I think there's the belief now from the business mm -hmm. through the roles of the CDOs that that, that actually exists. There is the way of working, which we need to adjust, and we talked a little bit about that as well. And, and those are, I think, you know, what I always describe is, is th these are the forces that will drive digital transformation. But the fourth one, which I always emphasize, is, is our cybersecurity response. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't really usually talk about that too much in, on the outside, but we, we have made incredible steps in our cybersecurity program mm -hmm. because we knew we were going to go on a journey where we, we, where we would be much more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and I think there are examples enough, even in a Belgian context, yeah. where you wouldn't necessarily think that the companies that have been impacted, that there would be targets. So you never know. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've, um, we've invested a lot. Uh, we, we benchmarked, we continuously to benchmark ourselves. We have a target against the NIST framework. Where we want to, where we want to end up, mm -hmm. um, and I would say I think you know around five percent to ten percent of the investment into into digital is in cybersecurity. Yeah, wow. mm -hmm. yeah. And, and 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 that that then is people, policy, awareness, tools, and yep. so on and so forth. Response um, processes, um, and um, as a part of that, we obviously then start to think about you know data classification type of things and and we drive also the 
out of that initiative, we drive also the conversation more broadly mm -hmm. in, our, uh, in our organization. We are driving the compliance functions and the legal functions to figure out, you know, how do we deal with breaches? What do we need to do? Obviously, GDPR moved us already around that, yep. around, that, around that spectrum. How do we need to behave and what are the procedures? which we are now implementing data classification, which didn't exist in Beckert. And, and, and um, I will say that making the link to sustainability, we are not making a separate data classification for sustainability, but the data we use falls under our data classification and then falls under the type and the measures and the countermeasures that we, that we deploy. Yep. Um, and that could be, because some of that data is HR data, so that has very high uh, um, uh, emphasis from us from a security perspective. Some of it is around the 65% ambition to have sustainable solutions is in R&D. Mm -hmm. uh, we have protective measures because we also have R&D centers in China. We have very high security around what people can do in those R&D centers, which actually even goes into can you actually have data on your iPad, on your mobile and all of these things. Yep. So all of these investments we are doing to, to safeguard the company, not mm -hmm. necessarily from a sustainability perspective, but all of the data will, that we need from a sustainability perspective will be classified like any other data and will be treated according to the level of, of sensitivity. Okay. Now, you talked about scope three, uh, so that, that means um, um, the ecosystem that you're in, uh, your, uh, your partners, your suppliers, but, but also your clients. So, so let's talk a little bit downstream, upstream. Your, your suppliers is... is um, um, when you select them, when you select um, the, their resources, their tools, and, and so on, is uh, sustainability becoming a, 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 a more important factor when selecting partners as well? Uh, certainly from a company perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, from an IT perspective, we are making baby steps. Okay. Um, we, are, uh, we are working with our procurement uh, organization to kind of like in our selection criteria to also get that in but it's not been our primary concern so far uh, from a from a company perspective yes yeah. uh, because we are feeling the push <coughs> from our customers yeah. and frankly we are welcoming that as well because we feel that with tools uh, like uh, life cycle assessment type of tools, which we've invested in as well, where you can start to figure out, you know, what your impact is through the life cycle of your product versus the competition. Yeah. We feel that we will have a differentiating edge yeah. because we, we actually like it when customers start to ask more questions because we are actually rather confident yeah. that we will measure up quite well. Yeah. <clears throat> but that also depends then because that life cycle assessment, if we take a thing called Dramix, for instance, which is a novel way to, um, well, basically secure floors mm -hmm. uh, in a much more sustainable way with less, less steel. Um, it depends on how we source that steel and everyone who works into that production process, yep. how the LCA will look like. And we want to have the LCA look very favorable. Mm -hmm. So we are pushing to our, to our suppliers yep. um, very much so around you know, what they are doing from a, from a sustainability yeah. perspective. Sometimes I feel when you take a step back though, is it's like you know, it starts somewhere and you kind of like, you know, if you're at the back, you sometimes I, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know how people feel at the back because you know, it's an avalanche of things yeah. which comes. And like I said, the technology is not always available to answer all of yeah. the and have the right solutions for the questions that customers are asking. Yeah. But that's the interesting thing that I see happening now. I mean, I speak to a lot of CIOs from, from, 
from uh, global companies that the more they, the, these, especially the huge companies, the more that they start demanding that from their suppliers, that there's a trickle down, trickle up uh, effect going on in, in the industry. So, so this could be really have an accelerating effect on, on, uh, on, and on, on this process. Absolutely. And I think it's, <clears throat> it's the mindset that eh? you change the mindset by that process. I think what is also really important is, is that then bigger companies take up the responsibility. And I know when I was at j and yeah. took up a lot of responsibility. But I also had the pleasure to be invited by Microsoft uh, on a, on a two-day uh, journey to, to their headquarters as well. And we talked about sustainability. And also there, you know, I got comfort that you can see that Microsoft is actually a rather big fund. I don't know how much it was, but I think it was close to a billion, where they put aside money to invest into companies that are that are trying to get sustainable solutions on the market. Yeah. So that kind of like, you know, helps as well to build a strategic relationship with your suppliers yeah. to understand like, well, you know, it's not only the product, but there's also the intent and how you deal with the yeah. intent. And and I think uh, I think that is much more important because the targets are the targets and Hopefully we all will get there, but it will depend on technology solutions and money that is available. But the intent needs to be right. Uh, and, and, and the more that sus being sustainable becomes a competitive advantage, Absolutely. the more and the faster the investments will go. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we see that already right now. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's um, LCA was something we deployed for one product and is now a strategy which we're going to deploy rapidly for all the products because we feel that we have a good story to tell. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about your uh, IT organization. Give us some, some numbers maybe to start with. 27,000 people in total in Bekaert. How big, is, how big is IT and how have you organized your IT? Yeah, you're going to be surprised, I think, because we are, we are about 240 people. Oh, yeah. That's not a lot. No? But obviously we, we work with a lot of outsourcers as well. Um, we, we try to benchmark a little bit our spend um, and, um, you know, I work with, uh, with partners and others to kind of like see what for if you want to be a digital leader, yeah. what would be your usual spend as a percentage of your sales? Uh, and what is that? Uh, well, you know, uh, two years ago that was 1.8 1 .8, uh, and now it's 2. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, you know, it's a little bit funky with wire rod prices, yep. uh, which uh, sometimes my CFO will say, yeah, but Günther, you know, we are actually not making more, it's just the wire price. That it, <laughs> so there's a debate on that, but, but, but we are still, I mean, you know, when we started, we were at 0 0.8, we are now at 1.2, so we're, okay. we're far away serious from yeah. uh, serious investments, but far away from, from what other companies might, might be doing. Yeah. Uh, you always need to be sensible around that. So 240 people work with a lot of outsourced parties. Um, we are globally organized. Mm -hmm. People in, in Bekart, in IT, sit grosso modo in Belgium, in China, in India, and a little bit in the Czech Republic, but a little bit. Okay. Um, um, and, and then, of course, you have people that you know, are tied to the plant. So in every plant, we have one or two people just making sure that shop Florence, yep. that uh, kind of like the, the, the barcode readers, the zebra printers, that they're all working like that. Typically, you have that. Um, so, and we are, org we are organized according to, I think, you know, what uh, a couple of years ago everyone called the Spotify model, which is we have product organizations. Mm -hmm. um, I have uh, one person that uh, runs all of the operation uh, applications, which is kind of like everything which has to do with shop floor, supply chain, logistics, and all of that. Yep. One person for, uh, for commercial, one person for the enterprise, and one, one person for R&D. 
Um, and then below, we are building platforms, platform groups, where we, are, where we have the aim to build once, scale much. Yeah. Um, because that is the essence of our strategy as well. This is like, you know, use differentiation where you need to, but if you can scale, yeah. scale fast. And in the platform groups, you have typical things like integration, um, but also data analytics mm -hmm. um, and so on. And then below, uh, you have the infrastructure layer, which is mostly cloud and, and, and some other things. And then I have my CISO who sits in, uh, in India as well, separate group of around six to seven people that are working with various, various uh, consultancy peoples and with Invisio in Belgium uh, to make sure that we keep our, our finger on the pulse when it comes yeah. to cybersecurity. So it's quite, quite lean. Um, and um, my heads of the product groups are double-headed towards the business units. Okay. So each of them, you know, from their development perspective as well, they run a product group globally, but they, they also are uh, responsible to influence and define the strategy for any individual business unit that they have responsibility for. Yeah. So quite an international uh, setup international, as well. Yeah. So, so what's the challenge in, in, in um, running such an international operation with your team in China, India, Czechia over well, here? Um, you know, as, uh, China has, has its own challenges, right? I mean, yeah, COVID has been very challenging in the last two years. Eh? And actually, funny still enough, today, uh, maybe, still yeah. today, I mean, you know, my leader of operations is in China and he came over for my leadership team um, four weeks ago. And the, the idea was is that he would stay for two weeks and then go back and then he needed to go 10 days in quarantine and then three days at home. But he tested positive on, on the airport in in, uh, in in the Netherlands, uh, Schiphol. And then he needed to stay for another week, another two weeks. We tried to actually get him into Brussels, but couldn't fly out from Brussels anymore. And actually, he was able to only leave yesterday to go back, which with a delay of almost three weeks. Oh. Um, and he will now spend, the rules are a little bit changing in China right now, he will now spend a sizable amount of, of days again in quarantine. So that has been problematic because, you know, you try to build up capability in China with the idea that we could meet each other, although we are completely hybrid. Oh, um, but once in a while, you would think Especially I would fly... Especially with such a different culture, and we don't. So you need to meet. Huh? And you can't. Yeah. So, um, so honestly, since I joined, that was the first time that I saw that person, that person in person. Yeah. Um, and then in India, there's a different dynamic because there we're building up. So we only had a couple of people, but we are resourcing more and more yeah. on the Indian market. So that's more the, the how do you then you know, bring new talent in? And I usually bring talent in that doesn't really have experience with the industry. Mm -hmm. But then how do you onboard them and create identity yeah. as a company? Because we are located in Pune, which is not that far away from Mumbai, yeah. but we're now building up in Bangalore. And, and, and in Bangalore, these people have not never seen Baycard. And also there, we had restrictions of travel. No. So the challenges we have is, is more when you do this transformation and when you start to hire more people, it's like, you know, how can you give them a feel of Baycard no. if they've never been in a Baycard plant and hardly know what a Baycard product is? No. Uh, that's, that's our biggest challenge. So to do that onboarding um, and then also to actually find the talent. So it's like, you know, that you know, war for talent and how you deal with that is, is, is the biggest one. How do we bring them in? Luckily, we don't have a retention issue. So I think 
the way that we are transforming the company mm -hmm. um, and the way that digital plays a role. I think also when I got uh, added to the executive committee, it gave self-confidence to the whole organization mm -hmm. that we are serious about what we can do with technology and with digital to influence the trajectory of the company. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your role. You started in, in 2020, so now almost three years in the role. Where, how would you describe your role when you started? Where is it today? How do you see it in the future? And where do you spend most of your time today? Yeah, it's interesting because talking about COVID, I, I started on the very day that in Belgium we closed everything. Um, so, Friday the 13th of February. Uh, uh, somewhere, it was I think in March, March. On, on a Monday. Oh, yeah. And I was lucky enough to go into the office to get a laptop. Yeah. Uh, but my admin told me that I need to get out by five because we were closing offices. Yeah. Not easy. And I had the same onboarding uh, difficulties. I came in for Bekart as a very traditional, the idea was to be a very traditional CIO. Yeah. To run IT, basically, you know. Um, but it was also conceived as a cost center. So still, yeah. the, the idea of like, you know, make this more performant, yeah. um, but not expensive, and run it as a, as a typical CIO. Um, I was lucky with somewhat the COVID um, uh, trajectory of six months at home that I didn't need to travel anywhere because I had a very tough onboarding schedule. So by now you start to understand the car industry and the, the, the tire industry and the construction industry, which is completely different than the Very pharma. Different. <laughs> Very because different. it's important that you understand the business and, and, and that you have a really good... There is a, there is a layer of, I would say, agnostics, where any business is a business. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's more around, the, and the products are the products that not really, I mean, I worked in pharmaceuticals, but I didn't understand the biological reaction of all of our products. Um, but, but I think, you know, what is really key to understand is, is, is what is the culture of a particular industry and, mm -hmm. and how do you influence change in a particular industry? Yeah. And, and with the tire industry, that, that goes quite well because I think they are also looking at transformation. But for instance, the construction industry is a very scattered industry with a lot of stakeholders and very inert to change. They actually, the way we build is the way we've been building for 150 years. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that's the, the, the thing you need to start to understand is, is how do you get your inroads and how good would your go-to-market strategy be if you want to disrupt a certain, a certain industry and yeah. all industries are different. To understand that from a cultural perspective mm -hmm. is absolutely key. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how you manage teams. I mean, you've grown the team uh, in, in, in India, maybe in other places as well. Talk us a little bit through your, your management style. How do you make sure that your teams are successful? Well, I've learned a lot in JNJ because I've seen many different management styles yep. of, of leaders. And like I said, I also learned there to be sure that you can work with your boss because, you know, if that's not the case, then... That's and that, that's true for me, but that's also true for the people that I work with. Yep. Um, so I try to I try to build high performing teams basically, mm -hmm. um, and um, I truly believe I think once at someone at J and J when I when I went from the director level into the VP level I think you know we, we we got a little bit of mentoring and some of the one of those mentors basically said like you know the key to your success now is not to work more because if you work more 
you're going to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. Now you need to transition to the level where you enable people to do more and to be more effective. And, mm -hmm. and to be honest, that was an eye-opener for me because when I left KBC, I had people reporting to me and I was so happy that I could go to J&J, be an individual contributor, because at that age, I think I was early 30s, I couldn't deal with all these people, the problems <laughs> that come to you, which yeah. are not necessarily work driven. There's, there's everything yeah, and yeah. there's dynamics. And yeah. I was at an age that I said, like, you know, that is of no interest to me. I think throughout my J&J tenure, I became much more interested again in managing bigger teams. I managed really big teams. Yeah. And then to see how can you make sure that every person actually can play that role. I think one thing that is really key for me is, is clarity of roles. Okay. Right. I mean, you know, if people don't know what they are doing, then how can they actually perform? So high performing teams is around cl clarity of roles. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. need to make sure that everyone understands what is expected from him and what other people do in the team and what they can expect from each other. Uh, and then you need to empower them. So I try to empower them as much as possible. Um, and I always got their back. I think, you know, that's something I learned from uh, from Mr. Stoffels in, in J&J, where where he always said, like, you take the risk, I have your back. Okay. And uh, I think that's, that's a great philosophy uh, because, you know, you want people to actually go the extra mile. And we are, we, are on, we are in the business where not everything is very predictable. Things happen and mm -hmm. things will work. Things will work out not so good. And then you need to provide air cover to your people as well. And once you kind of like, in my opinion, build that, the trust level amongst the team grows. And that was our biggest challenge because with COVID, we had, I had people everywhere and we came from an organization that was very headquarters driven mm -hmm. to now my organization, which doesn't have headquarters anymore, but is in three hubs, I always say, and we are equally important. So that trust level needs to be there. And I now also feel that having people physically over helps in building that trust level, although I've, I feel very comfortable at the video and in hybrid working. But still, to build that trust level, I think it's, it's really important that people meet. So I'm, I'm trying to build high-performing teams. So Gunther, that clearly uh, describes your management style. Um, but you're not only a manager, you're a leader as well. I mean, you need to lead your team and, and help to lead the, the organization. So how would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. I actually didn't care too much about leadership style until recently. Um, I think, you know, honestly, I, the one word I think you need to have is authenticity. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes I feel you can see when people are trying to play a leadership role and they're not really that. So what I'm not trying to do is that. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to be authentic and then adjust leadership. And for me, leadership is um, interesting discussion two weeks ago with someone is a football coach and we talked about leadership and and he's actually going to lead the Belgian Devils on, on the on the world uh, on the World Cup mm -hmm. and he said like leadership is actually decision making and uh, and you need to be able to make decisions clear decisions yeah. where other people cannot make the decisions and then provide the way forward and I find that a, a nice way to look at things so yeah. I typically try to paint the picture of where we're going uh, and then I honestly try to put myself out of the way until I see that you know we're not getting forward and then create decisive decisions. That's my leadership style. Okay. And what, what do you think? I mean, um, you're there now three years, or if I would go back to Jan, so what do you think the people that work with you, around you, would say about 
your way of working, your leadership when you're not around? What do they say if they have coffee and they talk about you? Yeah, that's, uh, that's <laughs> an interesting question. Sometimes I would like to know as well. Um, I think um, in general, I feel that uh, most people probably will say that I, I, I create an environment where everyone can actually speak up and be themselves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, from my, from my, I think they probably will also say that I, I uh, have high expectations and, and I'm trying to actually, you know, drive the organization f potentially a little bit faster than we think we can go. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and they will probably also say it depends on the day potentially as well, you know, whether it's a little bit more reasonable or whether it's a little bit more tougher. But in general, um, I believe in the idea of followership. And uh, the followership is, is where, where leaders can convince people that work with them to actually move with them and to actually go where they are going. And uh, I don't think I've done that badly. I think, you know, many people that I used to work with, we are in contact and we were still work together. No. Um, so, so I hope they, they would speak favorable. Okay. Now you shared with us that uh, your MBTI profile, your Myers-Briggs personality type is ENTJ. So your commander uh, is uh, the, the, the word for that. So an ENTJ is somebody with extroverted, intuitive thinking and judging personality traits. And these are decisive people uh, who love momentum accomplishment. And they gather information to construct their creative visions, but they rarely hesitate for long before acting upon them. So this is typical, I would say, a leadership uh, profile. What I'm gonna do, uh, uh, Gunther is give you five typical strengths of people with your profile. And then okay. you tell me if you recognize yourself in this. So a commander, typically if somebody who is efficient, who is energetic, who is self-confident, strong-willed, who is a strategic thinker and is charismatic and inspiring. Yeah. So I think uh, there's all five <laughs> I need to... Self-confident, I think, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I recognize myself in that a lot. Charismatic, sometimes I, I feel I'm, I'm not really sure. And I, but I think charis charisma is also something which you build up through your career and maybe even to, through your life. Mm -hmm. I remember that when I, when I moved from, from KBC into Janssen, I needed to present for, uh, for an aula with maybe 20 people and it didn't go well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, at that point in time, you know, I, was, I always thank that person and my boss would actually say, well, there's room for improvement, which was an understatement. Uh, and he said, like, we're going to do it again next week. And I said, no, I will never do it again. He said, no, no, you're going to do it again next yeah. week. And, um, and I took that lesson and then throughout, you actually get used to being on stage and talk yeah. about a couple of things, right? But I don't know whether that's real charisma. So that I still doubt. Yeah. Um, decisive, yes. Um, I, I think so. I don't like to beat around the bush, to be honest. I oh. think, uh, and sometimes you're not really sure whether you're right or wrong, but not doing anything is yep. always wrong. You like to take a decision and make a plan and yeah. execute on it. That's yeah, the, I, that's I think so. And maybe some, sometimes a little bit to the extreme, mm -hmm. um, because I think that's also, and I'm probably not alone with that profile in IT, uh, because what you read is, is obviously uh, you, you plan, you execute, you make a decision to maybe do something else, you execute again and you move and you move and you move. Yeah. One of my Achilles heels, which I know is, is that, you know, the celebration and the communication things. I'll forget. Um, is a, an Achilles heel for me. So I always, wherever I've, I've learned now in the last 10 years, wherever I am, uh, in what role, 
I always surround myself with people who are strong from a communication and a, and a, and a change perspective. And actually in Bekert, I have my own communication manager okay. who just makes sure that once in a while, we kind of like, not once in a while, but a lot, she intervenes and says like, well, you know, pause, we're going to celebrate now and we're going to do this yep. and that and that, which helps me to engage the organization, not only my own organization, but also the message that I'm trying to yep. bring in Bekert of transformation. And that, that I think that profile misses a little bit. So the one thing you need to know is, I think when you know your profile is this, who do you need to surround yourself with yep. to make up for the flaws of the profile? Well, let's talk about the flaws. The, yep. I mean, because every personality type comes with strengths, but also with weaknesses. Let's call them areas of improvement, yes. uh, development areas. So uh, commanders, ENTJs, can be very stubborn. They can be dominant. They can be intolerant and impatient. They can be arrogant, poorly handling of emotion, and cold and ruthless. So that's so the, the, the thinking, the, the rational part dominates. So you have to watch out for the for the emotional part that I can, can imagine. So and you, you told so. us already that managing people did not came natural and that you learned that. So so tell us a little bit about how, how do you which of these weaknesses do you recognize and how do you I will, I will tell you the first boss I had for 10 years in KBC um, actually at the end told me you can be actually really arrogant <laughs> and uh, I appreciated that feedback because I didn't realize but I think it's ab absolutely true yeah. and I think it's a pitfall I think uh, opening my mind up for other views and listening and not judging too much on what people are saying yeah. is something that I now pay almost daily attention to. Yeah. Uh, because if I, if I let myself overtake myself, I steamroll basically from one... Then it's my way or the highway. Then. My way or the highway. And, and uh, I've learned that that's not necessarily always good. I think you know, I have failures in my career as well yeah. that were because, because of my way and the highway. Yeah. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm really, really conscious about that. I okay. think also with age, I guess that comes. I think also in your personal life, eh, you, you, you have the same things where, um, you know, I've learned now I've got two kids. So yeah. you learn how to deal with people and, and that have different views and, and that are stubborn as well. And then how, how do you how you jointly move forward? Yeah. I think that's, that's the biggest thing for me. That, and I, I, I need to pay attention to that almost every day. Now you talked about your family. You shared with us that you have two daughters, 14 and 17, right? Yep. So what are the values that you're passing on to your children? What are the core values that you live yourself by? Yeah, I think uh, the one, and it's, a, it's family. Huh? So it's my wife and myself. I think honesty is one. We, we have a red line on, on, on honesty. We, we want them to be honest. They're, we also, and we are lucky now that we live in the, in the age where we live, but we also want them to be self-confident. Mm -hmm. um, so they have gifts which are different than my gifts, different than my wife's gifts, but they have gifts and uh, they need to be able to be self-confident about their gifts as well. So we, we are trying to actually be, bring them up as honest, self-confident and also vocal girls. So we've, we find it very important that they can argue, mm -hmm. um, maybe not to the point of stubbornness, but, but still that they can form an opinion and that they actually have the opinion of their own and that they are not too much, of course they're influenced, but they're not following others' yeah. opinions just for others' opinions. So those are the, the things that, that we really try to pass on, which 
brings us, you know, to interesting debates at the table often in a while because, uh, you know, you need to create room for all yeah. of these things. Um, but that livens up a little bit the debate at the, at the dinner table. Yeah. Now, we're all born with our gifts, uh, as, as you call them. What would you, if you had to select one, pick one, what do you think is your most precious, your most important gift that you got from life? Yeah, and I think it's probably part of my upbringing, but I think the the, the, the gift that I cherish the, cherish the most is, is that I think I can judge people quite rapidly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that has helped me a lot. Um, and because, let's face it, sometimes, you know, in businesses we're in political situations and so, to judge people is interesting and to understand how you can actually, you know, influence people is, is also very interesting. Also when you want to bring change. So um, judgment of people, in my opinion, is something that I'm very grateful for my parents about. Uh, my parents had a very big social life and, and I had the luxury to, to meet lots of people from different backgrounds when we were, you know, in, 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 the, very sp in the many sports groups they were in. Mm -hmm. And that has taught me to actually at a young age to kind of like potentially like look at and judging people. Okay. Gunther, you're obviously very successful in, uh, in, in your career and, and, and you moved from banking to pharma now to uh, steel wire B2B, um, uh, big industry company. Um, but we all make our mistakes. We all have our failures and that's, that's necessary and that's fine and we need to learn from them. So would you care to share maybe what was your most brilliant failure and what you learned from it? Yeah, I think um, there are many failures. I, I talked a little bit about selecting your boss. That was an actual failure, which I learned from and which I now kind of like make sure that, uh, that I, I got that covered. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, I, I guess, you, know, you need to, my profile might push for certain things where others are not ready for. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I learned that the hard way when, you know, <clears throat> bringing at that time agile into a company that was not really ready for that from a, from a business perspective mm -hmm. has been a massive failure in J&J at the beginning. I mean, you know, it was a crash of culture, almost everything, you know, beliefs, also the processes didn't really work and, and we re-readjusted re, re in J&J and it was a success. But the way I handled it in the beginning, like, you know, steamrolling and saying we're going to do this and whether you believe it or not that's the best way to do yeah. was a massive failure um, which which led to a couple of programs going totally off the rails and also <clears throat> had um, caused um, some some reflections between me and and my business partners where we needed to see eye to eye on this is really not going well yeah. uh, and heated debates um, and I think, you know, that's, that's, that's something that I now try to counterbalance is, is there's, there's always a right time for certain things. And I think, you know, the art is to find the right time. And you, obviously you want to change, you want to transform, but how to do that and then how to bring those stakeholders with you has been, is grown to be much more important in what I do right now, because I learned it the hard way. Yeah. If you don't do it, then okay. it's going to kill you. But you, you, uh, very obviously passionate about your work and creating results and, and uh, what, what are your passions in your personal life? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because, you know, uh, we, we moved around as a, as, a, as a family. So my family is, is a passion for me, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's really important. I used to do a lot of sports, mm -hmm. but then I kind of like gave up when I, and I had kids. But 
today there's two hobbies I would call them and, and, and passions is and that some of it is kind of like you know more energetic I, I started to play padel and I'm doing that much more and to the point that I'm almost addicted to it um, <laughs> addicted and the, to padel uh, or yeah, the idea that you can do something and you know it's also tactics and all of these things so it's great and the other thing is a little bit more um, mindfulness if you want but um, at young age I started to work with bonsais when I moved to Singapore I had to sell all my bonsais but I'm still I'm building up another collection of bonsais gradually because you know I I like the style I like styling trees mm -hmm. and um, it is a quite um, interesting way of self-reflection when you're working in nature in my opinion Bonsais, and what's the work that is involved in, in creating a bonsai yeah, so collection? Bonsai, bonsai, the, the idea is, is that you would create the image of a real tree in a small tree. Mm -hmm. And a small could be this size, this size, this size, bigger sizes. Uh, but that begins with a small tree and, and you need to guide that in, in ways that the branches are going to go into that direction. You need to prune it. You need to actually make sure it survives mm -hmm. because it's in a pot yeah. and, and it doesn't have a lot of nutrition. So you need to make sure it survives and you actually grow up with the tree and you have different intermediary stages that you want to reach to an end goal of how a tree needs to look like in 30 years from now. Wow, that's quite special. <laughs> <laughs> Read about it. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, in your um, in in your life, um, Gunther, what would you describe as one of the best things that has ever happened to you? The, I think one of the best things that happened to me was was uh, joining J and J mm -hmm. um, because it created so much opportunity for me to personally develop, but also for my family. Uh -huh. We got the opportunity to move to Singapore, which was life changing for us. We we moved with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, that's, that, that's something that we still talk about almost, you know, weekly. Uh, but the opportunity space, I think, which you got in that, into, into that group was, is, is incredible, to be honest. Okay. So, so I think, you know, personal development, uh, career development, and, and then our move to Singapore from a family perspective, I think have been uh, have been quite decisive decisive moments. Okay, super. And and on the flip side of that, I mean, professional or, or personal, what what would you say is the the worst thing that has happened to you, and 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 how did you overcome that? Well, and that's probably a long time ago. But I think you know the worst thing that 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 um, that happened was is I I'm, my mother died when I was still quite young. I was twenty uh, and. Uh, I had a very close relationship with my with my mother, and actually, she never saw me graduate from school, although she she wanted to say that, yeah. and um, that was uh, not easy, oh, uh, tough, tough, yeah, and and to then create a different relationship with my father, which I also thank because you know that changed a lot, and um, but I think you know that also maybe at a younger age, you start to also then realize that. Um, you know, our time on, on this earth is finite and you never know when. So you need to, you need to make the best of that. So, yeah. I, and that's, I think, a little bit, you know, what I try to do. I try to make the best of every day. Okay. Is that your personal mantra or what would you say is your personal mantra? Uh, not necessarily my, well, the one thing, it, I don't know whether it's a mantra, but what I, there's one thing that Churchill once said, which I, I, I always have in, in my mind, which I think I'm going to try to repeat it because sometimes I need to look it up. But I think it's in the in it's like success is not final. 
failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue, which is important. And um, I think, you know, that sums it up for me, to be honest, because I'm, I'm about, when you talk about high-performing teams, you're talking about continuous improvement as well, setting new, new bars, celebrating but not stopping. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's, that's what I try to do and what I try to do with my teams as well. Is It's like, you know, we want, I, I, I don't like the, um, the, the term like fail fast. No one wants to fail. Mm-hmm. So, but you want to know fast whether you need to course correct. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where, you know, failure is not fatal and, and success is not final. I think that represents exactly that. And then the continuous improvement that, that we all need to do. Okay. Who is it that you look up to in your life? People that are important, maybe mentors that were important in your life? I had a couple of mentors in, in J&J, which I still actually call once oh, yeah. in a while. Oh. So I've been there now away for three years, but there's a... There's um, the CTO, which I worked for, a CIO, which I work for. We chat on, on LinkedIn almost every three weeks uh, and some colleagues as well. Uh, so I, I really look up to, to people that have built their own careers as well and that have been successful mm-hmm. uh, in, in big international companies. And then on the, on the flip side, you know, from a personal perspective, I guess, you know, yeah, everything which happens around me, sometimes I look up to my kids, you know, how they stand into the world today. It's, it's not an easy world for kids to actually grow up into. And uh, the way that they do that, uh, that motivates me and impresses me as well. Okay. So last question of, uh, of today. So Gunther, thank you so much for coming over and having this brilliant conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, final question is, these interviews are watched by uh, young ambitious professionals that want to follow in your footsteps. What is the advice that you would give to, uh, to them? I would, um, I would advise them to be open-minded. One. One thing that I think is also really important is continuously learn. I think, you know, the, the, the world is going so fast. Get with the program. So, you know, make sure that you're relevant. Uh, and build your own networks. I think, you know, there's so much opportunity in people. There's so much opportunity around the world. Yeah. I truly feel that people that can marry business challenges now with technology and understand that, the role that a CIO and a CDO might have, I think we're just tapping the potential of yeah. what they can do in boards. And I would actually see many of my colleagues and others that will follow to be much more decisive in strategy setting for businesses, um, moving away from cost centers into profit centers and into strategy makers, but do it with confidence and make sure that you have the right profile, that you keep on learning, that you learn from each other and that you are confident in what you do. That's, that's my biggest advice to everyone. And on that note, thank you so much, Gunther. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.